This Marketplace podcast is supported by Invest Puerto Rico. Build the future in paradise. Puerto Rico, a hub for innovators brimming with world-class talent and a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem. Learn more at investpr.org backslash marketplace today. To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. On the program today, sales of the retail variety. We American consumers have never met a bargain we did not like. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace. In Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizal. Wednesday, today, I do believe, the 17th of January. Good as always to have you along, everybody. The macroeconomic indicator of the day today is retail sales, up six-tenths percent in December, the month that closed out the 2023 holiday season, which was, perhaps, or maybe it just felt like this, the longest holiday sales season ever, some promotions that started the day after Halloween. Meanwhile, we just came off MLK Weekend, which, despite having absolutely nothing to do with gifting, also came with deals. And coming soon to a retailer near you, Valentine's Day sales, President's Day, and every day after that. We've gotten to the point where sales inspire sales. When Amazon has Prime Day, Target has Target Circle Week, and Walmart has Walmart Plus Week. So, if everything's always on sale is... Anything actually ever on sale? Marketplace's Kristen Schwab gets us going. Let's start with a story about one company that tried to put a stop to nonstop sales. It's the early 2010s, and JCPenney is reinventing itself. It hires a new CEO, Ron Johnson, a former VP at Target and Apple. Johnson comes in and he wants to kind of appleize Penny. Rita McGrath is a professor at Columbia Business School. She says JCPenney made a bunch of changes. The biggest one being... They completely got rid of the promotions. They said, we're going to offer, you know, I think they called them real honest prices, something like that. Real honest prices. Because the new CEO, Johnson, felt JCPenney's prices were fake, artificially inflated, and constantly on sale. Nearly three quarters of the retailer's revenue came from products sold for at least half off. Johnson figured the consumer would rather pay a consistent low price instead of being overwhelmed by coupons and markdowns. But Johnson was wrong. The loyal Penny's shopper now is completely confused. Confused about the brand, its value, and the new pricing system. So the loyal Penny's shopper stopped shopping. Sales plummeted. Johnson was fired, and JCPenney brought back its old CEO. And McGrath says, the sales. People love feeling that they've gotten the deal or that they've gotten something special or that they gamed the system in some successful way. And in the last decade, getting a good deal has become even more important. The middle class has shrunk and the share of low-income consumers on a budget has grown. 
So has online shopping, and with it, the ability to quickly compare prices. Scott Neslin, a marketing professor at Dartmouth, says this has put pressure on retailers to sweeten deals. A discount of 15 to 20 percent used to be, hey, a decent promotion. Now that would be considered, you know, oh, that's absurd. We want 40 to 60 percent off. The discounts aren't just deeper. They're also more common. And now many consumers refuse to pay full price. It's a sales spiral. Constant promotion trains people to buy on promotion. So that can mean either delaying a purchase or purchasing ahead of time. Maybe you make do with your half-broken suitcase until the one you've been eyeing goes on sale. Or you stock up on your favorite brand of face cream when it's 20% off. This promotional cat and mouse game can make consumers feel good for a while. But the constant noise of sales can be overwhelming. And these deals can also be a shady tactic for retailers, says Chris Peterson, who teaches consumer protection law at the University of Utah. Take a sweater listed for 50 bucks, but it's never actually sold for 50. Instead, it's always on sale for 35. That's a false statement, and it's likely to mislead some consumers who are acting reasonably. So it's illegal. Many brands have faced lawsuits over this, but the reality is the burden is usually on the consumer, who's probably not going to take the time and money to sue. So that's part of the reason that companies do it is because, yeah, you know, there's a good chance that they're going to get away with it. Most experts agree that this deals, deals, deals environment can't last forever. Instead, sales are changing and getting more personal with loyalty programs. Amazon Prime Day is only for Prime members. Sephora offers specials to members who spend a lot. And Peterson says, with all the data companies collect on us now, they can offer catered promotions based on when you typically buy, how long something sits in your cart, or how many TikToks you've watched about, say, how to organize your pantry. All of those uh, could potentially be data sources that retailers either today or in the not-too-distant future may be using to craft a particular price for you. And if that's the case, we'll truly never know if a deal is too good to be true. I'm Kristen Schwab for Marketplace. Data is everything, gang. Retailers today, by the way, more down than up. Same, generally speaking, for the major indices. We will have the details when we do the numbers. Last Thursday, as I think we mentioned, the Securities and Exchange Commission somewhat begrudgingly approved something called a Spot Bitcoin ETF. If you're not up on your financial acronyms, that's Exchange Traded Fund. You can think of it as an easy way to invest in Bitcoin right from your brokerage account, no blockchain required. Now, as I think we also mentioned at the time, this is a classic please consult your own financial advisor story. So... We asked Marketplace's Matt Levin to consult some financial advisors about the Bitcoin ETF questions they are getting and their answers. Here's Matt. I asked certified financial planner Paul Bram how frequently his clients ask about Bitcoin. Yeah, it's easier to ask if there are any clients who haven't asked about Bitcoin, right? It's been an ongoing dialogue since Bitcoin emerged how many years ago? 
Bram is a managing director at Wealth Enhancement Group. Before the spot ETFs, Bram could kind of brush off Bitcoin, tell clients it's risky and unregulated, and also if you lose your keys to your crypto wallet, you've just lost all your money. Now he'll tell clients if you want some Bitcoin in your portfolio, that's fine. Let's just make sure it's an amount of money more appropriate for roulette than retirement. Let's put this in the casino capital category as opposed to core. Matt Hogan at Bitwise Asset Management says he's been getting lots of calls from financial advisors about the spot Bitcoin ETF his firm launched last week. But he doesn't expect to win over the crypto skeptical overnight. They're going to study it for months and months and months before they tiptoe into the waters. Hogan expects advisor attitudes towards Bitcoin to follow a similar trajectory to when gold first got an ETF in 2003. We called people who invested in gold gold bugs. We talked about tinfoil hats. They gathered in dusty convention halls off the strip in Las Vegas to talk about this barbarous relic. But the ETF moved that mainstream. Hogan says Bitcoin ETFs aren't for everybody. That may include many ESG investors, people who want to deploy capital with environmental, social, and governance goals in mind. Dan Yerger is a financial planner with My Wealth Partners. We're in the Boulder, Colorado area, so of course, uh, almost everybody's ESG investment interested. Uh, that is actually a big hindrance for it. As of 2022, over 50% of Bitcoin mining was powered by coal and gas. I'm Matt Levin for Marketplace. No coal, gas, or blockchain required to listen to us on our podcast. Should you happen to miss something on the air, you can get it at Marketplace.org or, of course, the platform of your choice. The days of cheap fast food kind of feel like they're a thing of the past. Prices at Chick-fil-A, for instance, are up 21% over the last two years. The McDonald's dollar menu is basically kaput. And do not even get me started on Subway's $5 foot long. But while fast food prices are climbing, something else is happening in this economy. Economic inequality is narrowing. Between 2020 and 2022, workers at the bottom of the income distribution saw their real wages, that is adjusted for inflation, grow by more than 5%. Those at the top saw their real pay drop by 5%. Eric Levitz is a senior correspondent at Vox who wrote the other day that those two things, more expensive burgers and flattening inequality, might just be related. Eric, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. How did you come to write this piece? I was surfing social media over the holidays, uh, taking a break from actually spending quality time with my family. <laughs> and um, I saw, you know, this argument bubbling up about a socialist commentator named Doug Henwood. He tweeted, can't imagine why people think this isn't a great economy. Lunch for three at McDonald's, $44. Mm. And that just led me to think about this really bigger question. Over the past three years, we've seen a, a historic reduction in income inequality, the largest, you know, we've seen since Ronald Reagan's election. At the same time, we've seen really strong popular disapproval of the economy. And so the, the question of are there some tensions that get surfaced when inequality goes down, that was a question I was interested in. So connect the dots for me then uh, on the premise of this thing, that that $44 for a family of three McDonald's is actually about lower 
uh, economic inequality. So it's not exclusively about that for certain. Of course. Um, but what we've seen since uh, the pandemic is a really large increase in real wages for those in the, the bottom 10% of the income distribution who've seen their real wages, even when accounting for inflation, go up by 5.7% between 2020 and 2022. Um, and then in the fast food sector specifically, where a lot of those workers work, wages have gone up by about 30%. At the same time, wages have not been rising nearly as fast for those at the top of the income distribution, mm -hmm. and inflation has in fact taken a bite out of their real wages so that their real pay actually dropped by about 5%. You put those two things together, and what you see is that about 40% of the post-Reagan increase in inequality has been reversed just in these last few years. The upper middle class having to pay more for McDonald's uh, and the rich in this country having to pay more for McDonald's, one, one cannot get uh, too wrought up about, number one, right? Number two, uh, the people on the lower end of the income spectrum have seen those wage gains, as you mentioned. What you didn't talk about was that group in the middle, right? Is that where the burden falls then? Yeah, there are real burdens that come from rising labor costs. As you have a tight labor market where there are lots of job opportunities for workers, where businesses are bidding against each other, you see heightened competition to get workers into those jobs. That leads to higher wages, which leads to higher prices, which, as you say, doesn't just affect those at the top of the income distribution. There are right. lots of working class and, and middle class families that um, rely on fast food for, for some of their meals. And, and there is a real burden there. Right. L let me let me get back to that thing you mentioned about 40% of the Reagan era income inequality basically disappearing during and because of what happened in the pandemic. Was it really as simple as pay people at the bottom more and we just didn't do that all along? Yeah, I think that the main thing really is that during the COVID recession, the amount of stimulus that we put into the economy was greater than the hole in demand that the COVID recession created. Mm -hmm. And so we ended up in a situation where there's really high demand for workers. And that translates to higher bargaining power for workers, which translates to rising wages um, in these uh, sectors that had previously for a long time been able to get by paying really, really bad wages. Um, let me get us back to where we started. Uh, $44 for a family of three at McDonald's. Um, can we have high working class wages in this economy and still have cheap hamburgers, if I can drastically oversimplify. Yeah, I, I think so. While I'm focusing on the role of labor costs, fast food prices are determined by a lot more than just that. Right. You have the other variable of consumer demand. You know, these businesses are not going to charge just only what they need to cover their costs and then a tiny bit of profit. They're going to try to charge as much as they can without losing customers. And that number goes up when there's high consumer demand. And I think that if we hadn't seen sort of the unrelated increases in commodity prices on international markets for food, price increases for fast food would have been significantly less. Eric Levitz, senior correspondent at Vox. He covers uh, the economy and politics uh, and, uh, and, and fast food. Uh, Eric, thanks a lot. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you.
coming up. That's the scary thing, that that bubble is coming. Try not to let it burst, though. First, let's do the numbers. Dow Industrials down 94 points today, a quarter percent, 37,266. The Nasdaq off 88 points, about six tenths percent, 14,855. The S&P 500 slipped 26 points, about a half percent, 47.39 there. Heard from Kristen Schwab about the phenomenon of constant sales, like what even is a sale now, right? In related stocks, Gap fell two and a tenth percent today. Kohl's lost two and a half percent. Nordstrom shed about six tenths of one percent. Just spoke with Eric Levitz about the relationship between economic inequality and fast food prices. McDonald's flat today. Yum Brands, which owns Taco Bell, KFC, and Pizza Hut, cooled off about a half percent. Shares of Spirit Airlines took another nosedive today, a day after a federal judge blocked its planned merger with JetBlue. Spirit off 22.5%. JetBlue dipped almost 8 and 7 tenths percent. You're listening to Marketplace. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdal. Kristen Schwab posed an interesting question up at the top of the show. What even is a sale when retailers race from one sales event to the next? The world of furniture definitely fits into that picture. Despite some bounce back during the holidays, today's sales report showed furniture and home furnishings with an almost 5% decline in sales for the year last year. And as Marketplace's Elizabeth Trovall reports, the past four years have been indeed a bit of a furniture roller coaster. Discretionary spending was totally happening last year, just not in the way furniture retailers wanted it to. Bill McLaughlin is editor of Furniture Today. You know, if you spend $1,500 or $1,800 for a Taylor Swift or Beyonce ticket, that's the cost of a sofa. And in this economy, Swift is beating sofa, partially because consumers already splurged on furniture during the pandemic lockdown. And the chilled housing market hasn't helped either. People tend to buy furniture when they buy a new house, when they move into a new apartment. He says what the industry really needs is an increase in affordable housing. You put 10,000 people into a new home, that's 10,000 potential new sofa purchases. But Mark Schumacher with the Home Furnishings Association isn't holding his breath on a construction boom. We don't see new housing starts making any sort of a huge comeback. He is hopeful that if the Fed cuts rates this year, something many economists expect, that could get more folks into new homes. The Fed holds keys, I think, to what's going to be a a good shift. And until then, consumers are still splurging on some kinds of home furnishings, says analyst Marisa Ortega with Mintel. We call it joy spending. Joy spending, just on smaller stuff. Wallpapers, candles. Having a cozy home or perhaps like very bright colors. There's money to be made on Good Vibes. I'm Elizabeth Troval for Marketplace. Okay, more now on how we are feeling now and in the near-term future. That question and others were answered in the December household survey, which was out from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York yesterday. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes read it for us. Wells Fargo senior economist Tim Quinlan calls this household spending survey aspirational, kind of like his own New Year's ambitions. I want to, you know, eat healthier, exercise more, drink less. Consumers' aspirations are to spend less on certain items, like electronics. Quinlan says we'll see them try to redirect that money towards purchasing homes. I think what's getting picked up in this survey is the intention of these households to, you know, finally get a piece of the pie in the housing market, which is an understandable aspiration. 
Meanwhile, a number of everyday expenses like food and fuel have stopped having crazy price spikes. That means consumers could expect less of an increase for those essentials this year and still keep their fun budgets, which have become a priority, humming along. Ethan Struby is an economist at Carleton College who used to work for the Federal Reserve. Maybe people are saying, okay, look, the kinds of services I like buying just for fun, manicures or whatever, those things are are not getting any cheaper. And I'm going to spend about the same amount as those, but I'm not going to have to spend as much on gas. Beauty is a sector to watch, says Natalie Cutler, who follows retail trends for BDO. She points out we're already seeing consumers spend more on skincare, makeup, candles. Just to kind of give themselves a little bit of a lift, you know, a retail happy purchase. It's a form of feel-good discretionary spending that can still be economical, having fun without blowing the whole budget. I'm Stephanie Hughes for Commercial real estate is where we go next, a sector of this economy, as we have been reporting the past couple of years, that is stressed. Just yesterday, Megan McCarty-Carino was telling us about the trend towards smaller office spaces and all the trickle-down effects of that. And then at the same time, building owners and would-be buyers are dealing with higher interest rates on commercial real estate loans. Both of those pressures are worrying lenders that have a lot of commercial real estate debt on their balance sheets. So Marketplace's Justin Home made some calls. Commercial real estate loans don't exactly work like mortgages. With those, a borrower usually locks in a fixed interest rate for 30 years. But commercial loans have to be renewed at new interest rates every five years or so. And a lot of the loans that are on the books today were made when the rates were super low. That's Dominic Miartan, CEO of Optus Bank in South Carolina. He says around five years ago, a lot of building owners thought interest rates were as low as they were going to get. So they bought new buildings or refinanced existing loans. That means a record amount of CRE debt will mature this year, according to the real estate data company TREP. That's the scary thing, that that bubble is coming. Miartan says it's scary because borrowers might not be able to afford their payments at today's higher interest rates. Worst case scenario, a bank might have to foreclose. Miartan says that's not something lenders want to do. It just really eats you up alive because it's destructive. That process destroys the value in the community, and it really sabotages the chances that that borrower, that customer you want to help, will recover. So Miartan says he and lenders like him will be doing everything in their power to avoid foreclosures. Lenders and borrowers can tweak loans so they have more favorable terms. But Miartan says there are limits to how much banks can do. If you're not doing it on market rate terms... Your auditors and your loan review and your examiners, when they come to look at your portfolio, they're going to look at it really closely and see if you are essentially hiding troubled debt. Last month, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation reminded banks to keep a tight rein on how they manage risk and keep a close eye on their borrowers' property values. Catherine Judge, a law professor at Columbia, says a big concern is whether banks can absorb the blow if some loans go bad. Are they adequately setting aside sufficient reserve to cover the expected losses on those loans? The Federal Reserve says delinquencies on commercial real estate loans have been rising over the last year. Judge says regulators are worried that if those delinquencies start turning into defaults, 
then you're in a situation where you have some banks that did a lot of lending in the commercial real estate, and those are likely to be some of the smaller banks and some of the regional banks, where suddenly numerous loans in their portfolio are defaulting at the same time. Some lenders don't have to worry about the weakest parts of the commercial real estate sector. To be honest, I don't have any big office tower loans in my area. I mean, that just doesn't exist. That's Brad Bolton, CEO of Community Spirit Bank, which serves customers in northwest Alabama and northeast Mississippi. Bolton says his bank's commercial real estate loans are mostly to local businesses, grocery stores, hardware stores, healthcare clinics, and those are doing okay. Our economy's been pretty strong. Unemployment is still very low in the four counties that I primarily serve, so that all has a bearing on that. Still, Bolton says his bank is being more diligent about ensuring that borrowers can handle higher interest rates. Nathan Roggy, the CEO of First Pacific Bank in Southern California, has been running a lot of stress tests on his borrowers, looking at what happens if rates rise even more, or if vacancies do. If you underwrote an office building and it was 95% occupied, what happens when it's only 50% occupied? Rocky says he's also been rethinking the types of new commercial real estate he's willing to lend for. Like, I'm not going to be too excited to get into office space for new lending versus something else, light manufacturing, lab space, something like that. That's because those kinds of properties, Rocky says, aren't suffering the same downturn that office space is. I'm Justin Ho for Marketplace. This final note on the way out today in which geopolitics comes to the beige book, the Federal Reserve's region-by-region look at this economy, anecdotally speaking. From the Atlanta Fed, this item, quote, A few logistics contacts hinted at re-emerging supply chain constraints resulting from drought conditions in the Panama Canal as shippers are forced to deploy to the Suez Canal. One is obliged to observe here that the Suez Canal is connected to the Red Sea, which, as we have all been hearing and reading, is the source of some supply chain constraints of its own right now. Our media production team, which is never a supply chain constraint, includes Brian Allison, Jake Cherry, Jessen Dooler, Drew Jostet, Gary O'Keefe, Charlton Thorpe, Juan Carlos Torado, and Becca Weinman. Jeff Peters is the manager of media production around here. I'm Kai Rizdal. We will see you tomorrow, everybody. This is APM.